following the introduction of Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982, litigation has evolved into a significant strategy for interest groups who seek long-term policy change, primarily because political leaders avoid taking positions on so-called morally sensitive issues, and thus they have been content to defer to the courts. Hence, litigation uh, moves forward uh, and the court's importance rises because political leadership increasingly accept or prefer to let judicial mediation address moral disputes. And as the CCBR displays and websites show, reproductive autonomy and access to reproductive health services are central concerns of a socially and morally conservative agenda. I consider how the CCBR's Genocide Awareness Project campaign attempts to advocate for fetal rights over and above women's rights. And I think this is the central strategy. The CCBR's conservative vision of women, the traditional family, is paired with their desire to impede access to reproductive health services and serves as the foundation for the mobile, lavishly produced, professionally mounted, visually jarring graphic display that the CBR called the Genocide Awareness Project, and I'll call it the GAP. The strategies of shock and surprise used in the GAP is replicated in both websites of CBR and CCBR. While this presentation doesn't discuss those sites, I'll encourage you to investigate them yourselves. Because the GAP displays serve as the backbone of CBR's various abortion education projects, the photographic choices featured in the GAP display are worthy of deeper analysis. But how precisely do the GAP's specific photographs transform or reproduce socially conservative or morally judgmental ideology? Visual culture theorist Susan Sontag described the ideological work performed by provocative or shocking imagery as follows. Photographs of an atrocity may give rise to opposing responses, a call for peace, a cry for revenge. Without question, CCBR's GAP intends to purposely provoke shock and distress, with the larger aim to being to conceptually erode pre-existing and more liberal visions of women's reproductive autonomy and to resurrect the oppositions between women's rights and those of the fetus. In the gap displays, the fetus detached from the pregnant body or the uterus is representationally isolated. This construction of IRD serves the CBR and follows from the parent grant of the parent CBR and rationalizes the appropriation of civil rights rhetoric. This, their agenda implies that the fetus is vulnerable and in need of protection by a non-maternal guardianship. In other words, by other configurations of state regulation. <clears throat> I think I'll put this one up just briefly. Snapshots of bloody, moistened tissue and undetermined physical miniature body parts mobilize spectatorial distress, in part because pro-life activism and new technologies such as ultrasound, have effectively inculcated the public to conceive the fetus as distinct from the maternal body. The public, in turn, has internalized the representational cues of the so-called aborted fetus. 
Barbara Duden dates the earliest public exposure of this type of photographic disassociation of the fetus from maternal embodiment with Leonard Nelson's photographic essay and cover reproduced in the 1965 cover and magazine of, uh, cover of Life magazine. Life claimed Nielsen's photographs display, quote, the drama of life before birth in its photographic depiction of, quote, a living 18-week-old fetus shown inside its amniotic sac, end quote. But as Life admitted some years later, these claims were inaccurate, as fetoscopy, which by 1991 granted vision into the amniotic cavity, remained in its early stages in 1965. As life retrospectively explained, and this is on the website, what most people don't recall, or more likely never knew, about Nielsen's achievement is that, in fact, many of the embryos pictured in the photo essay had been surgically removed for a variety of medical reasons. Thus, while Nielsen's photographs depicted a deceased rather than live fetus, life encouraged their viewers to interpret the substance as something meaningfully alive. And this was done in the context of expanding public exposure to fetal revelation. In essence, Nielsen's images consolidated an emergent appetite for the visual revelation of the body's interior. Techno technological change, fetoscopy, and sonograms enables viewers not of the medical profession, including the mothers and fathers, to see more, to see things larger or smaller than the eye can grasp, to see things which had been previously off limits, says Duden. Thus, Nielsen's photographs, which were commercially successful for both photographer and the magazine, more accurately presented not so much contraception as the beginning of life, as Life magazine first declared, but the nurturance of a popular thirst for a vision of the fetus distinct from the uterus. New visualization technologies prepared the conceptual ground for this important ideological shift, the personification of the fetus, both in and beyond the uterus, and definitely distinct from the mother. This context explains why CCBR's visual delivery of a disembodied fetus is topical, because the public acceptance of the personification of the fetus rests at the center of support for fetal rights litigation and legislative arguments to reduce or restrict women's reproductive autonomy. Their endeavor to shift public opinion against women's rights tests popular interpretations of human rights. Women's human rights as mothers or potential mothers are diminished with the prioritizing of fetal rights. As Cynthia Daniels convincingly argued in her 1990 study of the rise of fetal rights in U.S. case law, the debate about competing rights between mother and fetus reconfigures relations between women and the state. Quote, the new politics of fetal rights focuses on the politics of pregnancy itself, on mediating and regulating what some now characterize as a social relationship between the pregnant woman and the fetus. Quote. I'm going to put another quote by her up. Of course, this relative debate is not new. Policy historian Daniel Williams surveyed fluctuating public and religious views on abortion in the United States from the 1930s to the 1980s and noted that public ambivalence about the state of the status of the fetus was transformed by the U.S. Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade in 1973 
by which women secured autonomous human rights relative to their reproductive capacities. This landmark legal ruling, along with the earlier Griswold v. Connecticut of 1965, liberalized access to abortion, but perhaps more significantly ensured a woman's autonomous purview over her reproductive health by guaranteeing her, quote, right to privacy and to abortion during the first trimester of pregnancy, end quote. To sway contemporary viewers in favor of the fetus and away from the woman's rights, the CCBR's campaign must metaphorically and empirically push public opinion to envision the fetus as a victim, independent of or even vulnerable to the mother. One major implication of bioethical reform, so-called, therefore, is that the fetus is convinced, is conceived not only as having rights from the moment of conception, but that the fetus is, quote, potentially at harm from the mother during all stages of development. Therefore, the negative counter-narrative erected by the CCBR and the CBR is that women are fickle or capricious, seen as able to, at any moment, decide not to be a mother. Feminism, too, is demonized because feminism not only argued for decriminalization to abortion and birth control, but is seen to offer options, women options, beyond the traditional family. With fetal rights distinguished from the woman whose womb sustains the fetus, the defense against state or legislated measures to intrude on women's reproductive lives on behalf of protection for the fetus are weakened. And in 1989, the Canadian Law Commission's working paper on crimes against the fetus was criticized for their advocacy on behalf of the fetus as follows. Quote, the fetus, personified at conception, enters legal discourse constructed as a unique entity with a separate legal status. This serves to situate it within an economy of displacement and detachment from the mother. Ideologically, as critic Sheila Noonan continued, this produces the reification of the fetus, which masks both the material conditions of pregnancy and women's roles within reproduction as conventionally understood. The connectedness between mother and fetus is thereby obscured. In response to the decriminalization abortion of abortion granted in the U.S. with Roe v. Wade in 1973 and in Canada with the R. Uh, the Morgenthaler case in 1988, the latter acknowledging that access to abortion is fundamental to women's health and health care. Some pro-life activists implied that women were legislated, legislatively awarded the so-called choice to terminate pregnancy at will or whim, a characterization that created, as one critic wrote, quote, a deliberate picture of irresponsible women who needed to be controlled by the medical profession. Thus, for some, the liberalization of access to abortion was demonized as, quote, a product of the worst excesses of the sexual revolution and the feminist movement, and the judiciary should be found at fault for failing to, quote, take fetal rights into consideration and to legalize the so-called murder of unborn children, end quote. And Daniels, in this quote, situates the fetal, right, fetal rights activism even more acutely within the ethic debate over gender and citizenship. At the heart of the politics of fetal rights, 
Do, is the question, does the ability to carry a fetus to term necessarily change women's relationship to the state and alter women's standing as citizens? As the fetus is animated and personified in public culture, the power of the state to regulate the behavior of women, both pregnant and potentially pregnant, is strengthened. Women's rights as citizens are potentially made contingent by fetal rights. They can be revoked or qualified by the state's higher interest in the fetus. I wanted to read it for you because I think it's a pretty important point. Fetal rights makes an appearance across the CCBR's graphic campaign, with the organization rhetorically valorizing itself as leading the vanguard to revoke women's rights in order to prevent acts of so-called genocide against the unborn. That's while access to abortion has disintegrated into seemingly irreconcilable polarized positions between pro-choice and pro-life, I think the stakes are higher. The CCBR pushed to reconceptualize human rights, which includes the framing of mother and fetus as competing for rights in civil society. For that reason, I believe the principal motivation of this campaign is supporting the moral regulation of women by the state or other paternal agents. The gap juxtapositions of flesh and bodily references depicted as fetus alongside a pair of culturally iconographic photographs that recollect traumatic historical human tragedy and conflict also warrants review. Juxtaposition, Giselle Fiund noted, readjusts the meanings of photographs with, quote, brutal contrasts overpowering any information that a more detailed and accurate caption might provide. The gap elevates the fetus to status as victim by placing the photographic representations of disembodied human tissue along images associated with human suffering during the Holocaust and the vigilante campaigns, lynching campaigns perpetrated against African Americans in the United States in the 1930s. Recontextualized in this scenario, the fetus represents just another instance or victim of genocide and as such is rendered vulnerable to annihilation. These eight historical juxtapositions make CCBR's entire message suspect. In order to be understood, a historical photograph's meaning is reliant on reconstruction of the context or even a caption, to strip an image of a specific time, people, place, and relocate it in an alien context is to animate that photograph or image as an instrument of propaganda. What remains is an image evacuated of historical context, receptive to whatever the message the propagandist has attached to it. And what of the lynching image? exploited by the CCBR. They have evacuated, excavated a 1930 photograph produced by studio photographer Lawrence Brettler of the hanging and tortured bodily men remains of two African-American men who have names, Thomas Schiff and Abraham Smith. In the actual incident, the young men were dragged by a mob from a jail cell where they were being held on suspicion of murdering a white man and raping his girlfriend. Their lynching by white supremacist vigilante mob in Marion, Indiana, was witnessed by more than 5,000 tamed people, some of whom are depicted here. Thousands of prints were produced and were sold at 50 cents apiece. 
postcards of lynching had found a popular market. Howlett's particular photograph of vigilante hate, hate crime against the two young men found itself in the 21st century gas displays in Lethbridge is because the images of lynching had currency and were widely distributed. What isn't explained is that why CCBR feels justified in the appropriation of this image of hate without showing any respect for its violent origins, the men lynched, nor to the ethics or permissions from family or kin. Perhaps this appropriation was an easy decision for them, hence affirming to them, that to us, that their political purpose is ethically suspect. It's a simple choice. Photographs of vigilante lynching or from the Holocaust guarantee a reaction. Photographs ripped, ripped from horrific particularity and from the people at time or place, as scholars have shown, become images consumed as mass entertainment. And lynching photographs were consumed not only by the mob and witnesses present at the exact moment of the event, but in the wider circulation, sale, and consumption of the image in the aftermath. The CCBR has resuscitated the horror of lynching and the Holocaust for contemporary mass consumption and pure effect. How can an organization that on one hand asserts that their agenda has pedagogical value uh, on the other hand, be so disrespectful and remarket these images here as a device to stir public, public consciousness about the so-called wrongs of abortion. For this reason, I challenge the credibility of the agenda. The use of the graphics is provocative and in no sense educational. The organizations relish strong public reaction to the graphic spectacle, and both organizations brag of responses to their campaigning with their websites featuring reports of lawsuits, police retaliation, public confrontation, etc. Furthermore, while strategies of nonviolence violence is adopted from civil rights activism, this is offset by the history of aggressive extremism exercised both in Canada and the U.S. by anti-abortion movements who have targeted, harassed, and killed healthcare providers. This campaign of intimidation is added cause for civic concern. Finally, there is another correlative thread pending, thread pending, with their belief that the fetus assumes life at the moment of conception, then all pharmaceutical or interuterine devices are destined for recriminalization and regulation. And the websites issue a call for restrictions against the pill, Norplan, and others. And they use illicit video to charge Planned Parenthood, the worldwide health provider and educator on sexual and reproductive health, of malpractice. Whereas the agenda to outlaw or restrict pharmaceutical or other forms of healthcare and contraception is not explicit in the GAP displays, their website announces, quote, many forms of birth control can be classified as abortifacients since they do not always prevent fertilization and in some instances work to destroy the life of a developing child. CCBR contests contemporary contraceptive mentalities that hold North American women, and by extension, North American men, that who rightfully and individually in control, or uh, who might be rightfully or individually in control of their fertility by any method. 
I'm almost finished. While CCDR attempts to reassure student franchisers of the gap by valorizing their campaigns as social reform or civil rights activism, and they say so on their website, I suggest that the organizations, whether it's the student clubs or the, the um, pro-life, other pro-life organizations, who take up the adversarial torch to limit women's reproductive autonomy, these players, these franchisers serve as links in the chain to reinforce and distribute socially conservative attitudes about human rights more generally. By franchising the gap, local student and community pro-life clubs harness themselves to the CCBR and CBR's political and moral provocations to stir revenge and to insensitively and bluntly tarnish women's behavior as being too liberal or ethically irresponsible. In so doing, they exhibit themselves to be ignorant of more important structural factors of class, circumstance, age, ethnicity, culture, all of which bring women and their partners to make life-changing decisions about reproductive health. Thank you. Carol, as I sat down, I realized it would have been...